0: The world according to Gorf. Shalom, 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 shalom.
1: The world according to Gorf on the Stunt Show, JMandAM.Org. My guest today, David N. Weiss. David, welcome.
2: Yay! Okay, that wasn't me, though. That was that was the crowd outside. Thank you for having me, Mr. Gorf. Why is it called the Stunt Show?
1: The stunt show is a rotation of four different hosts. Every week, there's a different person in the rotation doing some sort of crazy stunt. Oh, I
2: was going to say, shouldn't you call it the stint show? Each guy does a stint a different week? I don't know.
1: Yeah, and if you were a cardiologist, you'd call it the stint show.
2: Okay, very good.
1: Let's begin by establishing where we are. We are in... The Beverlywood neighborhood of the Pico-Robertson neighborhood of Los Angeles, which is close to Beverly Hills, in California. Deep in the heart. And I welcomed you, but the truth is you were welcoming me into your home. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I'm seated in David N. Weiss's office, and I'm looking around at posters of Shrek 2, the Smurfs, with the tagline, Where the Smurf Are We? Are We There Yet? Which is, I presume, the Ice Cube poster that is being blocked by the Smurfs' basket of goodies. And, of course, Jimmy Neutron, boy genius. So clearly we are in the abode, the working space of a screenwriter. We talked before we began this official recording about story structure, 3X structure, and so forth. So let's talk now about where you're at in your career. And then we will go backwards to the beginning to tell the origin. We will flash back.
2: Ha ah, Well, I don't know where I am. You know, they have, there's the famous four stages of a career. Who's Dave Weiss? Get me, Dave Weiss. Get me someone like Dave Weiss, and who's Dave Weiss? So
1: <laughs> I thought the fourth day was actually—you mean Dave Weiss is still alive? Hey,
2: that would count too. Meanwhile, right. you're
0: 33 years old. Yes, I have no yeah.
2: idea. You—you you never know where you are in that continuum because you can go up and down and back and forth. You know. But, uh, clearly, I'm—I'm I'm heading towards the upper back stretch. I would think. I mean, we're—we've had some great stuff done, and and we're looking forward to doing some more, but. Um, I would love to, to transition to doing some more personal stuff. The studio stuff is thrilling to be involved in a big thing, um, but you don't have a lot of control, and there's not as much self-expression involved in that. You know, it's much more like just trying to hang on to the bull and stay on the bull as long as you can without getting thrown off. I mean, we're pitching big studio stuff still, but I'm also kind of noodling on smaller, more personal projects. Who is we? I have a writing partner, uh, for a long-time buddy, J. David Stem. He's frequently misspelled as David Stern. Very talented guy out of the South. He doesn't talk like that, though. He was a journalist, and we met on my first catch comedy show on a show called The uh, Roundhouse for Nickelodeon. And we were sharing an office together. And we've been sharing ideas together ever since.
1: How did you strike up a working partnership with him that lasted so long?
2: Uh, well, that partnership was born out of just self-preservation. We were It was a very dysfunctional show. Uh, the writing staff was uh, We had a very talented head writer, guy by the name of Buddy Sheffield. He had run In Living Color and was kind of a real sketch show maven. What year is
1: this?
2: Mm. This is going back into the like 95 or something like that. Mm-hmm. very beginning of both of our careers. And we were thrown into an office together just to share space and, and as Buddy would get some headaches and he wasn't always there and then the writers were sort of left to you know, fend for themselves and it became very much sort of like Lord of the Flies. So we just heard everyone sort of hunkered down and you know just kind of tried to survive and we would kind of borrow jokes from each other and then Thought, well, why don't we just sort of make it official? We'll just really write some of these things together, and and then after that, I got a gig running a Bible series for Zondervan Publishing and uh, Focus on the Family called the Story Keepers, and I needed writers, so uh, I hired a couple buddies from film school and I hired Dave, and we worked out of uh, out of a garage in a house I was renting, you know, a few blocks away from here, 20 years ago or more, and. Um, we did this 13-episode series, which was a blast, and I ran the show, and David really became very helpful. I started directing some shorts for Josh McDowell, who was an evangelical minister. This was my earlier incarnation, and I needed someone to help run the show and some help on the sketches I was writing for Josh McDowell and shooting. We were shooting in Kansas City, so when I went back to shoot, Dave stayed and and helped kind of assist in show run, and then I brought him on to help me with the shoot in Kansas City, and And he had the good idea, let's just write a spec script for TV. Let's get into the bigger TV business. And we wrote a spec Frasier. Frasier. Yeah, back when that was the hot show. Mm -hmm. For a a, long time. Dating myself here. And we did that together and went to work for Klasky Chupo. Explain
1: which production company that
2: is. Klasky Chupo was the company that originally animated The Simpsons and then uh, created The Rugrats. They needed somebody to help write pilots for new shows, and we were writing these little 14-minute pilots, wacky animated pilots for for Gabor Csupo, who's an amazing visual artist out of Hungary. I and mean, that kind of brought all these Eastern European artists with him with the crazy spiked-haired characters and the wacky colors. And, and uh, that went really well, and they gave us the Rugrats to run. It went out of production, and they, they were done making them. And Sumner Redstone at Viacom said, let's, let's make movies, and let's turn this into a into a franchise. And so we got hired to put it back into production. Ran that show for a year, and then did the movies. I and mean, that was really the beginning of our professional partnership.
1: Talk a little bit about how you work together as a team. It might be confusing that two people will collaborate and write one script with one unified voice. Also tell me a little bit about how you approach Thank you. writing animation versus writing live action, which is to say writing cartoons versus writing something that is going to involve actors who uh, are both on camera and also heard on the soundtrack.
2: Writing with a partner can go all different ways. There's as many different styles of working with a partner as there are partnerships. Sort of like a second marriage. You really have to learn to give and take and figure out, you know, how to avoid each other's pet peeves. And I find that when I'm fighting with my partner, which thank God I don't do that often, but when I do, I tend to get along better with my wife. And <laughs> with my wife, I tend to get along better with my partner. You need someone to be fighting with, so <laughs> it's it's good to have, uh, you know, to spread that around a little bit. Happily I think both relationships have grown more peaceful as I've gotten older and slightly less stupid. The way we work basically is we get together for the brainstorming part, and we don't do that all day. We'll work for together we'll work 4 hours a day maybe together. And we will spend the mornings working separately to think of stuff to bring to a meeting. So we'll work on our own in the morning and then we'll get together to share what we've thought of or to just try and ignite something if we haven't thought or we'll write scenes and once we're working on a project that's to come up with stuff. Once there's a project going, you came up with a pitch, we home the pitch, we go to the studio, we work with the producer, they notice the death, and we rework it, and then we finally say, the studio says, go, go write that. Then we sort of have an outline, we spend a week or two fine-tuning the outline a little bit more, and then we divide up scenes and we go write. And when we tend to divide up the scenes in chronological order, we used to say here, early on we tried, you write act two, I'll write act one, and whoever had act two was (laughs) because <laughs> there was no way of knowing what was going to happen in Act 2, and you hadn't discovered any stuff in Act that was just That was just immature. So now what we do is we just divide up logical... You know, I'll do these first two scenes, you do the next two, and then I'll do the next two. And then we'll stop it at that. Get that done. Regroup for a day or two to talk about what we learned. Share some notes. We don't even tend to read this stuff. We'll read it, but we won't do any changes really. Divide up the next section and march on. And we'll do that to get what we call a vomit pass. Just get something on the page. But then we give notes. We... And we read the whole, we, we, we call it getting a patient on the table. And it's hard to do surgery when the patient isn't on the table yet. So i got the patient on the table, there's blood and guts everywhere, but you can kind of see there's a patient here. Now we got to see if we can't start connecting some of the vital organs and get this thing up and running. And so then we'll give some of gross notes, of big, kind of big structural notes and larger notes. And then we'll do those notes usually... I tend to like a chance to take another pass at my own material. Like, Okay, you're right. Those are good, big changes. Let me let me take that big, rough pass so I can get... At least the, the first draft, I'll feel like those scenes really were mine. Then we just start swapping the scenes back and forth. Well, real quickly, I'll run by, hey, I, here's what I think we should do in these sequences. And he'll go, oh, but I was really trying to accomplish this. And I'll go, oh, I see what you were after. Well, if you're trying to do that, how about if we went about it like this way or that way? So it's really good. And this is, again, good in a marriage and in, in any kind of relationship. But before we just go and change... These things, we have a dialogue to see what it was the person was really trying to get at. Because once you have that, you have a much better shot. And frequently then my note will change. Oh, you were trying for the character. Okay, you know what? I, I take back my note. I like what you were trying to do. I didn't see that. If that's what we're doing, these minor changes would work for me. And then then we just change, we just swap scenes. I'll go take a pass at his stuff, we'll take a pass and we just keep passing it back and forth. Frequently at that point, near the end, just online, we wouldn't get together. He'll stay at his house, I'll stay here in my little sanctuary, and, and we'll just email the scenes back and forth to each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: At the very end, if we can, for a week or two, to sit face-to-face and punch out, I find to be spectacularly useful. There's a synergy that happens at that moment that doesn't happen in the separate space. Just the look on someone's face, finishing a sentence, and suddenly jokes that you wouldn't have found alone. The two big advantages I find with the team are A., In the drafting process, while you're drafting, someone else is drafting. Thank God for that. And that speeds things up. And then B, the synergistic thing that happens where there's just ideas that won't come in a vacuum.
1: Compare the process of writing in a partnership to learning in Chavruta.
2: I've never been to Chavruta, but I hear it's beautiful this time of year. And I would love to learn there sometime.
1: It's in the south of France.
2: Very nice, very nice. And by the way,
1: for our listeners, a chavruta is a learning partnership where a duo will puzzle over, say, a piece of Talmud or Gemara in order to suss out the meaning of it. In a way, it's like reverse storytelling.
2: It's a great question because I frequently think of the parallel. My writing partner wouldn't be aware of that because he's not Jewish, so he's, he has no great uh, interest in learning Talmud. But I'll refer to it every now and then. So my God, this is just like learning Gomorrah. Because, And I'll even find myself wanting to use the cadence if you want to say that in Act 2 she's going to be upset about X, Y, and Z, then we have to say that she would have noticed that in Act 1.
1: Can you do one like that with the Smurfs movie? Like give me a Smurfs thing in the cadence of learning.
2: There were moments uh, when we, 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 you know, and it's been now a couple years since we were working on Smurfs, but... Yeah, but
1: there's um, something about, you know, and the blue wand talks Well, they're all
2: blue, they're all blue. That's true. But but no, it's like, if if you want to say that she was upset about her birthday, you know, wouldn't this have come up before? Like, doesn't she have a birthday every year? Why is this only coming up now? Okay, that's what Rabbi Gamliel says, but, but it's not Akasha, because Rabbi Yeshua will say... That, um, and that wasn't a reference to the Jews for Jesus Messiah figure. I just want to make that clear. Uh, he'll say, perhaps it does come up every year. You just didn't see in Act 1 yet where she had a conversation with Papa where she said it's the same thing every year. Okay, now it's not a makhloket at all. Anyway, so it comes up a lot. I mean, you, you, you're looking for consistency in behavior, and in the Gomorrah, you're looking for consistency in the law. So where here it says that you find a jug of wine or a jug of, of oil and you have to return it. But over here, it said when you find those barrels, the Mishnah says you can keep it, and the Gamora says you you can keep it, and the Mishnah says you have to return it. You know, which is I might have it reversed, but which is it? And then you find, oh, they're talking about different cases, and then you have to go reverse engineer and figure out which case.
1: You're listening to The World According to Gorf on jmintheam.org. You, David, and Weiss have had a very interesting journey, both in terms of your career and also your religious journey. But let's begin. Where were you born, and what was your early schooling like?
2: I was born in Bakersfield, California.
1: Which is where?
2: Uh, it's in the San Joaquin Valley. So you're talking two, two and a half hours, sort of up the middle of the state from LA. And uh, I was born in Bakersfield because there was no hospital in Shafter, which is where we lived. Uh, Shafter had, I think, 4,000 people when I was born, and uh, it has just blossomed, it's grown some 30% or something. I must be a, there must be 6,000 people there now. And we moved, though, by the time I was two, my my mother was looking for something with a little more of a Jewish community. So she moved to Ventura, California, which did at least have a synagogue, which was shared by three or four different cities, uh, Camarillo, Oxnard, Ventura, all gathered together, uh, Ojai, all the families in all those towns met in Ventura at the community Jewish center there, the Ventura Jewish Uh, Temple Beth Torah. And so I grew up there. Very Reformed community, not particularly religious place. Almost all my friends were Christians. I didn't see any of my Jewish friends from Temple uh, during the week ever, because we all went to different schools. Uh, One or two at my high school. There were, I think, a total of five or six Jews, maybe seven in my high school of 2,600 people.
1: Where's your family from originally when they came over, I presume, from Europe?
2: Yeah, uh, Romania, Russia, Poland, you know. My grandmother on my mother's side was actually born in Minneapolis. So her mother came from Romania. Father's mother marched in a parade for the Tsar when she was a girl.
1: And Weiss is your original name, or was it changed and shortened?
2: Yeah, we think it was changed. I believe we were Vishotsky, and it got just chopped down to Vis, which was assumed to be Weiss. And suddenly we were Germans. In high school, again, all my friends were Christians. So I went to church a lot just to hang out with my friends. Campus Life was like the big churchy club on campus. And and the Christians had all the fun. Christmas was a blast. and There was nothing but Christmas parties. And I enjoyed teasing my Christian friends and being resistant to Christianity. But I was envious of the music and the songs and the season and the decorations. and, And our Judaism was not... A passion in our house. It was, it's, you know, we're Jews. And, but, you know, my dad was the high school music director, and so a Friday night meant marching with the band in the football stadium next to my dad. We'd go to synagogue frequently before the game, or, you know, early when it came in early, I don't know. But then it was football games, and Saturday was mowing the lawn and playing flag football with the rec department. So there was no sense of a real Jewish identity. I, I mean, I felt strongly Jewish. There wasn't an anchor. There wasn't tangible things to hang on to and to kind of cherish. To go, wow, this is really cool and fun. So I kept going to church. And to be truthful, the, the real draw to church was they did shows. I mean, <laughs> I, was, I was a showboat. I loved putting on a show. I remember at my senior year, the local Methodist church was doing Godspell. And I had heard Godspell over and over on a trip to Mexico with some friends of mine. I had some really dear friends who were a beautiful Christian family, and they took me with a motorhome caravan in eighth grade to San Felipe to ride motorcycles and water ski in Baja, California. And it was the trip of a lifetime, and we listened to Godspell the whole way down. And I knew that show backwards and forwards, and so when they decided to do the show, and I could be in Godspell, it was on. So now I'm in church every week. The youth pastor's kind of working on me. And by the time I was a senior, I had become a Christian. My parents went through a divorce and they were so busy trying to just keep the family fed and and calm and try, you know they were really a beautiful parents who really you know they were very very uh, amicable but it was a tragedy for both of them and they uh, were so busy just trying to keep everything together in a civil way that there was no paying attention to who was doing what religiously so there were three of my siblings that became Christians separately.
1: How many siblings do you
2: have? Uh, Forty-seven. No, there are uh, five of us. Thank God.
1: So four siblings in you.
2: Four siblings and me. And, uh, male, female? Uh, no, they're, each of them is one or the other. So uh, my sister is female and my brothers are all male.
1: But you said that your mother moved you to Ventura in order to have a little more Jewish identity content, what have you. Right. Did you notice or perceive any kind of difference aside from having that temple that was close by?
2: Well, no, because I was two when we moved. So um, Ah, right, that's
1: right. you mentioned that. that you were that
2: young. And I believe Bakersfield has a Jewish community now, probably the, at least the size of what we had in Ventura when I was growing up. The Ventura community, I think, has blossomed a bit more, and there's more of a Jewish presence. There's Chabad there now, and the, yeah. and the temple that I went to, I think, has become a much more vibrant place. And I believe there's been a real move towards a more spiritual and traditional base amongst the reform movement, from what I hear. I. I believe they kosher the kitchen up there to have kosher venture, At least they were teaching classes about that. And I think that comes partly from the recognition that all of this tradition that the Jews have and the, and the ritual has a real place. I learned more about that as a Christian. I was reading, like one of the best sellers when I was a Christian was a book called The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. And a great book. And I later realized that everything he was clamoring for, he was talking about the need for Ritualized prayer and fasting, and basically everything in the Jewish calendar, he, the church was missing, which makes sense. And he, it's funny because as a Christian, my favorite psalm was Psalm 19. And I used to, I wrote a song. Uh, I, I threw in Yashki's name, unfortunately, in, in the song, so I really don't sing it anymore. Uh, but the heavens are telling of the glory of God. The earth is declaring the work of his hands day to day, forth for speech, night to night reveals knowledge. Right? The heavens and everything about creation is telling you that that this the creator is here and he loves you. right? And then it switches halfway through to this partnership. It's obvious just if you look around that there's a God. Part two, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is is right rejoicing the heart I'm thinking do you want to have your soul restored I do do you want to have your heart rejoiced Yes where's the rejoicing machine please put my heart in there and because uh, I didn't always feel rejoiced I felt I, I, I suffered with I think a low-grade depression as a kid and it goes on it's sweeter the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey and the dripping of the honeycombs and richer than gold and more to be sought after than fine gold and I'm like wow and that's King David talking. And then in the church, Paul is saying, under oh, no, the death, the death comes through the law. The law, No one can keep the law, it's too much. It was just there, put there to show us how weak we are and how how fragile and how imperfect we are so that we'll realize how much we need JC. Which is a real revisionist history. King David would be like, what? And now that I'm practicing these laws and I'm walking to synagogue with my beautiful children and we we're spending 20 minutes on this walk, well it's short now that we're moved into the hood, but for 17 years, I walked to west Kahila and which was a mile walk, and we looked at the spiders together, and we stopped at the walking tree, and the kids got a treat, and we memorized the order of the books of the Torah together, and we talked about their day, and we—it was just—it was the highlight of my week. And You want to tell me that that somehow not driving on Shabbos is a limitation? It, it was—it it gave my kids a childhood with their father, you know, and and their mother, and.
1: We're talking about your high school experience. By the time you were a senior, you were a Christian. Did you actually convert? Did you undertake some kind of a?
2: Yeah, I was baptized, and eventually I was fully immersed. I, I annoyed my Presbyterian minister because they sprinkle you, and it, it bothered them. And this—that's what it was. I was looking as it's Christianity uh, opened my eyes to things like that Psalm, and really prepared the way for me. So I think I was saying that Reform Judaism was coming back to tradition, and I was saying it made sense. Because now that I've had a taste of tradition, and could see as a, as, a, as the old fashioned reform where we just we talked about Chagall and we talked about the, you know planting trees in Israel and the Holocaust, those are important things, but they're not they don't rejoice your heart and they're not going to cause someone to cling to the faith. I remember distinctly hearing lots and lots of statistics: the Judaism is dying. We're in in, in two more generations there aren't any Jews at this rate, so we really need you guys to hold your. You know, hold it on. I'm thinking, that's the marketing plan? Tell us that it's over? And it's like, it's like saying, the Titanic is sinking. Please, everyone, we need more people to get on because it's not going to be here much longer. No. So Christianity was about life and eternal life and JC. And and if you don't have a Jewish education and you don't know all of this richness and beauty and eternity in, 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 in this incredible practice, you hadn't tasted that, then it's easy to jump off of it. And I did. And I, and I was baptized, and I joined the church, and, I, and it took me a little while to get into it, really. I was more looking for hugs and family. You know, a, a lot of people get into the church based on the dysfunction that they're coming out of. Keeping kosher is not a good way to solve your dysfunction. Keeping kosher is something you do to be obedient to an eternal creator. Going someplace where you get a lot of hugs can be both. But I, I came at it more from, a I, you know, my parents had gone through divorce, and I had some needs, and, and the community was warm and welcoming, and so that's why I, you know that's why I did that I think. So I was baptized twice just to make sure it stuck. The immersion part annoyed the Presbyterian minister because they, they believe you don't need to be immersed. So there was sort of a disregard for Presbyterian theology by suggesting it, their sprinkling wasn't enough. It Turns out it was a mikvah. I mean, that, that's what I was looking for. I mean, almost everything that I was looking for in Christianity, I found the original version of it in my Judaism later. Like the baptism was a mikvah. Like, Duh! I go to the mikvah now and I'm like ah. And this that's exactly where the baptism came from, you know. If that story happened, John took JC and put him in the Jordan and they he put him in the river. My morning quiet time with University Christian Fellowship turned out to be chakras. You know? Even the wrapping of the There's a move that you do and you say Shema and you say you'll bind them upon a sign upon your arm, and you touch that and it'd be upon your head, frontless here between your eyes and you touch that and that move is a crisscross pattern. Which later, when I was dating a Catholic girl in Ireland, when I was still a Christian, and I began to genuflect, it felt great, and I didn't know why. This movement from my heart to my head to my arm, back and forth. I, to this day, it feels really good. I was like, I was the only Presbyterian when I came back from Dublin who would genuflect. And then when I first put on tefillin, and I made that move, you know, arm piece to head piece, kiss the finger across the heart, I was like, oh my God. And you know, This was going on for... Thousands of years before I a good thousand years before the church was even dreamt
1: How did you take the journey from Christianity back to Judaism?
2: Well, in a nutshell, while I was working in Ireland for Don Bluth, animated Don Bluth, I met a young Well
1: em- let me actually let me stop you for a second. So let's back up. Okay. So we have to bring college, where you went to college, and career into the story so we get a context for the next question, which is how did you take a journey from Christianity back to Judaism?
2: Good point, sir. So yes, uh, so high school led to youth ministry at the local church while I was in junior college in Ventura, which led to Pepperdine University, which was a Christian college, Church of Christ school. There I studied business, but also studied organization and administration of religious education. There I was doing all this. I was doing youth ministry. I was doing media. And at some point, someone pointed out that I might want to try and make a living at media just because I loved it so much. It was a, was a young lady I was dating in a church, her mom, partially I think to get us to cool our jets about getting married, said, hey, send him to L.A. and <laughs> see if he really wants to do this. Bless her heart. She knew that I had it in my blood. And we're actually in touch to this day. I have a great sense of, uh, as we say in Hebrew, hakoros tove. She was a very wise woman. She's, to this day, has taken a keen interest in my family and my future. And we don't check in very often. It's not so appropriate that I should be so in touch with a you know, an ex-girlfriend's mother. But... um but it, just a, it, was a, it was a loving thing. They helped me find a free place to stay when I later applied to film school. And that's what happened. When I was at Pepperdine, I was in, all the, I was in plays and all the spring sings, and I would get a leading role. And, and I was an actor. I was a ham. I was putting on shows. I was doing shows for the youth groups at the churches. And then um, eventually I went, I went to work at a Christian record company, was still doing all my youth work, media work, and, and this woman said he should go to L.A. And I moved to L.A., I went back to Pepperdine, after a couple of years of working and audited theater classes, a theater professor said he should go to film school. There's no money in theater. And I applied to USC and got into USC film school, sort of a miracle, and made a Christian action-adventure comedy film there that won some awards and got me an agent. That agent got me a gig writing for a Mormon guy because I had written a Christian action-adventure comedy script after my film that I did at USC. And that guy sent the script to Dublin, to D- Tom Bluth, um, looking for funding. Don wasn't interested in doing live-action films, but he liked the writing, and he brought me over to do a rewrite for a couple weeks on a film that eventually became All Dogs Go to Heaven, and I ended up staying in Ireland for almost two years. I was doing youth work there, I invited a young guy to come and teach a class at the, for my church group, a young Orthodox guy that I met there, an animator by the name of David Steinberg.
1: So Orthodox Jewish.
2: Orthodox Jew. I'd never really met one before, and I had to go all the way to Ireland to meet my first, and it turned out he was uh, from Chicago, where my folks were from, and then he, we both moved back to L.A. at the same time. But we started the dialogue and a friendship in Dublin, and uh, that goes on to this day. He's a neighbor and a dear friend, and I'm, I have a corsetot for him, because his Jewish education, filtered through our conversations over coffee and work, really got me much more intrigued by my, by my tradition, by the tradition I didn't know I had. The observant Judaism, there's all this rich, rich stuff going on that growing up in the community at the time that I did, I just wasn't exposed to. It was funny because it was propelled by a passion that I got in church. The Christians are very big on following God at any cost. If there's a God, you should have allegiance to him. And that should be your focus. So I didn't get that so much growing up as a Jew. But here I, I discovered it in the church and then realized after meeting David that this is an invention of the, it's, an, it's an invention of God, <laughs> and he gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it, you know, to Yeshua, and then he gave it to the, you know, the men of the Great Assembly, or to the prophets and the judges, and and down the line, and now we have it from our rabbis. And as King David said, it's delicious. So I just started down that path, and it was a slow transition. Four or five years, I think, slowly going to church less and less, and and going to synagogue more and more.
1: What was the response of your
2: Christian friends or compatriots? Well, mostly they were intrigued at first, and then they were really surprised when, when they realized it wasn't just me combining, you know, some beautiful Jewish traditions with my faith in JC. And then that got a little bumpy. Some of my friends had a harder time staying friends, but very few. The ones that were really dear friends have stayed friends to this day probably don't talk religion so much, and I think secretly, or not so secretly, many of them are still praying for my salvation. But they mean well, and some of them, I think, are are some of the more moderate ones see sort of what I saw in David Steinberg. If you're keeping God's commandments, you're really in the covenant still. That's a hard thing, I think, for Christians to see, but if you step outside of your modern Christianity and you look at historically what Jews were taught to believe by God himself, The business of saying the law was there to teach us we couldn't keep it doesn't hold up. It's too beautiful, the law. And there's too many places where forgiveness has nothing to do with being perfect. I had an interesting lunch with a famous actor who became a Christian. A Jewish
1: actor originally, or
2: something. No, no, he was a Christian actor. And we had a lunch, I think under the guise of asking me how I work professionally with my faith because he was getting a little bit of trouble from his secular employers because he was too religious and Mm -hmm. here I am wearing a yarmulke and keeping kosher and I'm kind of out there with my faith. You know, my career hasn't suffered for for religious reasons ever really. I mean, it may suffer now and then if I don't write well, but but nobody seems to not hire me because I'm Jewish. The lunch quickly turned to a discussion of, of my salvation and he made this kind of weird point that he said to me, David, have you ever lied? And I said, you know, I hate to say it, but if I told you I hadn't, I'd be lying now. And he said, well, what does that make you? And I said, that makes me someone who told a lie now and then and feels terrible about it. And I'm really trying not to do that again. He, and he was, that wasn't the answer he was looking for. He thought the natural thing is, I'm a liar. I said, God, I hope not. That's a horrible thing to define yourself as, because you did something once. He said, have you ever stolen anything? And I had to confess that when I was six or seven, I took a Snickers bar from Savon, and I felt so guilty about it, I ate half of it, and then I took the other half to my mom and said, I confessed. She made me take it back, and we paid for it. He said, well, what does that make you? And I said, that makes me a six-year-old who had bad judgment. He said, no, it makes you a thief. And I said, are you joking me? Is this, do you teach your kids this? Are your, are your children thieves and liars? And he said, well, they would be, but thank God they're washed in the blood of Jesus. And I said, oh my heavens, I said, as a Jew, I would never label my child a thief or a liar. I I tell my children, they're children of the creator of the universe. And they're spectacular, miraculous creations. And they have a raging battle going on inside them between their evil inclination, their desire to do something selfish or to maybe get that extra candy bar that isn't theirs, and the desire to be who they are, which is this wonderful human with fantastic potential. And that that struggle will always be there But that as long as they choose good more than they choose the dark side and they continue to strive to improve themselves, then they will always be this, you know, they're just a spectacular child of God. We fall down. The question is, do you get back up? And I find that to be a a more realistic, healthy approach. He said, well, I don't think so. So I said, let me ask you this. Have you ever done any bad acting? And he he looked at me and I said, what does that make you? I said, there's no Jesus to save you from bad acting. If you ever you're a bad actor. And he was a little flummoxed, I think. That logic doesn't hold up and the and the scriptures don't support it. So my friends that think that I should be a Christian, I would challenge them just to look in their own Bibles a little more, because it doesn't make sense.
1: Comments, questions, or you just want to fetch, go to Facebook.com slash the world according to Gorf. David N. Weiss Does your experience in the church give you any insights into Jews who, to cite the Pew Report, which everybody's been talking about, Jews that may be part of a good 50% of our people, who within 20 years may not be Jews anymore because they have not, perhaps, had the inspiration to value their Judaism or go on the same path as you have? And I guess what I'm asking is, what kind of advice would you give for inspiring people to want to value their Judaism.
2: You know, my understanding is they have a similar problem in the church, that, that young people who maybe are very active in the church in their teens or late teens and even early 20s tend to fade away pretty quickly. I think that is a reality of our universe. I, and I could be completely wrong. I'm not a sociologist, and I haven't done that many uh, scientific surveys on this, but I'm told just anecdotally, I think from the from the Medrash or from, from the Talmud, that only, what, 10% or 20% of the Jews actually left Egypt with Moses? that, That most of them stayed behind. And that historically, that's just always been the case. And it fits with me poetically as a writer, my experience of all of life, that the people that are actually doing something that's meaningful and will last, it's a hard decision. The average Joe wants to come home from work and pop a soda or beer or whatever and sit on the couch and unwind. I don't have time for that and you don't have time for that and the people that I know that are inventing new ways to do heart surgeries and and the, you know, the, the religious Christians that I know and the religious Jews that I know that that core that really keep the home fires burning and are disciplined and just always working on themselves and always working to help their community and their neighbors and reaching out. You know, that, that 10% that does the 90% of the work. I just think that's the way the universe has been created. You know, and I chose the road less traveled. Pew doesn't run the world. God runs the world. You know, in the church... We had good models in that we, we made the church a sexy, fun place. There were rock concerts and big light shows, and, and it was fun. People came, they had a good time, and socially, it was big numbers. And I do think it would be good if we could do a little more of that in Judaism, but the bottom line is it would be bait and switch if we did. A friend of mine said that to me recently. Because at the end of the day, you got to quietly put on your tefillin if you really want to have that kind of regular encounter with God you know, in the way that our forefathers did. I would encourage people to look at their mortality. I I would encourage people to study quantum physics, because the more you look at how the seeming reality is just absurd, just the—I mean, I work in the Writers Guild, just looking at how big corporations, you know, run the universe and how it's impossible to win any battle really that lasts you win the battle now and then, you know, you, we, we defeated the J- Japanese and then they bought all of America and we defeated the Germans and then we repaid to make Germany the greatest country in Europe. And there's no, there just is no ultimate, Tal- Talmud says that. And it worked, you're, to ta- you're, you're, get me someone like Dave Weiss and then you're, who's Dave Weiss? The moon gets big, the moon gets small and, and life is so full of cycles. So people who pay attention to the reality of the situation, you know that one day you'll be the king and one day you'll be a pauper. One day you'll be alive and vibrant and important and one day you'll be hopefully having people gather around to mourn what a great person you are. If you want that, you have to be a great person. And that doesn't come... It just doesn't come with... I mean, that's the. I've never won an Academy Award. I've never won an Emmy. I've been nominated for, for an Emmy. I've, I've worked on films that were nominated for Academy Awards. I can imagine that next step. I always feel... Like, anything I do isn't enough to satisfy that deeper... In the church, we called it the God-shaped void. But everybody wants more. And people who are serious about filling that void know they have to look someplace spiritually. And spiritually can be just volunteering at an orphanage or helping feed the poor. That's spiritual stuff. I'm not saying you have to be an Orthodox Jew. In fact, I've been thinking, I I travel and I speak about the beauty of Judaism. And I, I just think, for someone who's born Jewish... If you look into it carefully, we made a covenant with God. I think there's going to be a day where you wake up in heaven and you go, oops, wow, we had this really special thing going and I didn't take advantage of it. Yeah, you'll get over it. You'll have a little shame. It'll be a little uncomfortable when you realize that embarrassment and then you'll move up and on and it'll be okay. You can have a much richer life if you grab onto that now and find some little way to attach yourself. Light a candle if you don't like candles. I tell people I have a joke in my thing when I travel. It's a joke, of Seriously? If, you're, if you do one little thing to improve yourself each day, each week, each year, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're not doing anything Jewishly, light a candle on Friday night. Uh, if you're lighting a candle and going to the movies, then light two candles and go to a better movie. Just always be moving up. But it's true for people who aren't Jewish. You know, Find a way to do something that lasts. And the things that last are the things you give. Taking care of your neighbor, looking out for people, You know, getting outside of yourself. And there are many disciplines out there. If you're a Buddhist, be a better Buddhist. If you're a Christian, be a better Christian. If you're an atheist, and I know some lovely, very spiritual atheists, as ironic as that sounds, I will still say, I've sampled a lot of these things. I had dinner with the Dalai Lama in Berlin, and we had a nice conversation about stuff. I was a Christian for a long time. I had deep, long arguments with higher-ups in the Mormon church when I was working in Ireland because so many of the, the people involved with the booth studios were connected to the Mormon church, and my first employer was a Mormon I gotta tell you, everything borrows from Judaism. It all goes back to that original source. It's such a privilege, if you're born Jewish, save yourself some headache and go (laughs) to the source.
1: You're smiling as you talk about this. You're waving your arms around, you're gesticulating, you're smiling. I mean, this is in your blood, it's in your bones. I mean, you really feel passionately about Judaism.
2: I just can't find anything else uh, in life that reaches as far and as deep and, la- and, and is lasting. and, and it's, it's permeated every aspect of my life. So I look at like, these pictures of my children on my desk and my wife and this home and the family and all the adventures we've had. They've all been centered around Jewish life and Israel and going to Israel and sending my kids to Jewish camps and the Shabbat table. And It is, it's, as you said, bone. It's in my bones. It's, it's all, Judaism is something you touch. You put your hands on it. That's what that I mean, is one of the beautiful things about it is that it's it's here and it's there you know it's in this life and it's in the world to come
1: where did you meet your wife
2: in church <laughs> yeah she was a good Presbyterian girl
1: how did you end up becoming a from religiously observant Jewish
0: family
2: one little tiny step at a time just chasing after what was delicious and class here class there you know I met this fellow David Steinberg in Ireland and he got me Thinking, and then I met uh, Michael Medved, uh, the film critic and radio guy, and uh, he, was, he invited me to his house for a Shabbos lunch. We were at a, both on the board of a film, advisory board of a film festival. Uh, he invited me to his house for lunch, and I was so taken by that lunch, I kept going back and then going to his synagogue, where it was just such a great outreach place, and just young people come in to explore their heritage. And we'd go to a class, and there was a rabbi there, Rabbi uh, Goldberg, who now runs uh, Yeshiva Orliahu who is just the sweetest, most delicious, uh, gentle soul, but with just you know the kind of wisdom. You go sit in a class and just everything he says just makes your brain crackle. Just beautiful, simple little stuff that made a difference in how you faced your challenges every day. I, we kept going back. And then she kept coming with me and then she enrolled us in a class at the University of Judaism. That's what it used to be called. and And then she said, I want to have a full Orthodox conversion so our children will never be... Challenge that they moved to the most fanatical religious place on the planet. And so she enrolled us in like a three-year study course with, you know, some very long-bearded rabbis. And here we are. How did
1: her family take to the conversion, by the way?
2: They were very uh, warm about it and open about it. But I think it was painful for them because even though she didn't mean it, there was no way around the fact that it was, in a way, a repudiation of what they had given her as a child. So that was hard. And we tried to be very sensitive about that. But they were always very openly supportive. And they were very delighted that at least, even though it wasn't the church upbringing they were hoping for, the trappings of the Judaism were so lovely. And when you look at little Jewish kids coming out of Jewish day schools and their little yarmulkes on and their payers flopping and their tzitzes waving, and the joy and the the dedication and just the obvious commitment to the Father in Heaven, which is how they, you know, related to it, it was just so tangible that I think that warmed their hearts a bit and it made it much easier for them to face, you know, what was otherwise a loss.
1: You wear your kippah, your yarmulke, when you work, and you said before that you're very open about your religion. How is that perceived by other Jewish people, in particular Orthodox Jewish people who may prefer to wear a hat and not wear a kippah? I have informally polled other Orthodox Jewish entertainment professionals, and the advice that I have received, or at least the opinion that I've received, almost uniformly is, you do not want to be out there with your Judaism. It will adversely affect your profession. And yet, you're an example of something that is adorable that is the opposite.
2: I don't know for sure that it, that it hasn't adversely affected me. I haven't perceived that. People tend to be very warm, and Hollywood is full of so many eclectic personalities that I think it's pretty easy just to lump me in with any of the other kind of uh, particular e- eclectic behaviors that people have. I also try not to, I even though I'm wearing a yarmulke, I do try not to make any deal. If I don't walk in and say, hey, it's, you know, it's time for prayer, I, you know, I try and stay focused on what we're about. And yeah, but a lot
1: of stuff is done over lunch. A lot of business is done over lunch, for example, and if you're in, say, uh, the Warner Commissary... Or the given your status in the industry, the Warner Executive Dining Hall, you will not be eating what everyone else is eating. You may not be eating at all. It's hard in some instances not to call attention to yourself.
2: No, it definitely comes up, but we take care of it in kind of a businesslike way. And I try and feel out the situation. If you know the studios will say, "Gosh, you know, can we get you a special meal or something?" And some in some cases they really want to do that, and I'm I'm, I'm delighted by that. In other cases, you can tell it would be pushing it a bit and I don't feel like I should get special treatment because I've chosen an you know an unusual path. In those cases I don't like to call attention to myself. So you know if we don't know a producer very well or the studio person we're dealing with, then in an eating situation like that I would just go and figure something out and I'll have cottage cheese. I'll have you know, I'm you know, I'll just have a Coke and say I'm just not very hungry or whatever. So it doesn't come up because mm-hmm. I, I do think it's not fair to my writing partner. He, he didn't sign on to have every meal or every meeting be a primer on you know, some weird new function of what's going on in the Orthodox world. So even though I'm out there with it, I try and be pretty invisible. You know? So yes, I'm wearing a kippah. I don't wear a neon or striped kippah. It's just a black leather kippah, so with my dark hair,
1: I'm not even sure people always notice it. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nahum Siegel Network. David N. Weiss, bring us up to the future. Tell us a little bit about your filmography, what you've worked on, what you felt passionate about, and what your aspirations are moving into the future career-wise.
2: Probably most proud, probably my first film, All Dogs, just because it was my first. It holds a sweet spot in my little heart. And the Rugrats Hanukkah special is another because it's such a rich opportunity to tell the Hanukkah story since... My Jewishness is such a part of who I am that in my line of work, you don't very often get a chance to actually do something that's so spiritual. And I'd never try and push that into any of my projects because, you know, I'm there to do a job and they want a movie that is going to be universal in nature. And, and also just the audience wants that. The audience doesn't want a sermon. They want a funny or a heartwarming movie. When you get that opportunity to do something sort of spiritual, that's a neat opportunity. But in every film, I find a moment to be proud. Where I can find a little moment that has some universal truth. So just looking and looking at the walls, you know, there's just the moment in Smurfs when Papa apologizes to Clumsy at the end for believing more in a vision than believing in Clumsy, and seeing that vision, which ordinarily should be the gospel. You know, you're talking about this sagacious elder Smurf who, when he sees the future, that's the future. And yet, Clumsy defies it, which proves that we, you know, we have the ability to, to transcend the stars. And that's a universal truth, but for me personally, there's a little bit of pride in knowing that that was sort of Abraham's takeaway from God, saying you'll be above the stars. In Shrek, too, that, you know, in my mind, I was writing towards a definition of love that I'd heard from a very wise fellow, what's important to you is important to me. I do a whole spiel, which I won't bore you with now when I travel and speak, about how hard that is to do. But, you know, Shrek does that, and at the end, when the king is a frog... And he realized he's been hiding that. There's a heartfelt moment that came to us early on. And you see that in the movie, that makes me proud. So going forward, I'd love to keep finding moments like that and putting them in big movies.
1: You talked about personal projects way back in the beginning of our discussion. Give me an example of a a personal project that would be dear to you.
2: Uh, Stemmy and I are both beginning to... Stemmy is a nickname for David Stem, my writing partner. We're both beginning to noodle more on projects that are less about finding the next thing that a studio is already owns the rights to and wants to exploit, which is still a great business to begin. And starting to more just call things from closing our eyes and saying what delights us. And so we each have... I don't really want to go into the specifics because we're each working on one. And uh, until they're a little further along, I'd rather not reveal... What it is, but but needless to say, that next step creatively, we've I think we've done a great job of taking underlying properties and helping studios realize them for a broad audience, international audience. Whether it's a sequel, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a book, you know, looking around this room, almost everything was a rewrite of some sort. So I think the next frontier for us is to go out with something more original. We've we've done that for studios where we've written. And they've gotten pretty close, but none of them have ever been greenlit.
1: And when it's time for that to be rewritten, can you then go in and say, we're the best rewrite people in town, let us rewrite ourselves?
2: I can say it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I want to get back to one thing before we wrap up. This might be a slightly insensitive question, so forgive me in advance. Let's say one of your children comes to you and says, Dad, I want to be a Christian.
2: That's funny, I, I, was, I, I was worried about what they might want to be, but that didn't come to mind. You know, it's funny, that one doesn't worry me in particular. It's very, very unusual. In fact, I don't know of any cases, with the exception of one that I heard about that definitely seemed to have more to do with this broken soul, wounded bird syndrome. Orthodox Jews don't become Christians. They wander out. They'll be secular, maybe they'll become Buddhist. They don't become Christians. People with a strong Jewish education... Just have a hard time going that way. It's just swimming backwards. They become other things. Orthodox Jews leave the faith in frightening numbers. But again, not that frightening if we say that God runs the world and He's aware of what the numbers are going to be. It's interesting that as a people, we've always been, what, we've always sort of ranged somewhere between, what, 12 and 18 million? That's in itself sort of a weird miracle. That group should either disappear, which it just hasn't done, thank God, or it should be astronomically huge and grow exponentially. And yet, it just sort of stays in this steady area, which again goes back to that. So I'm not worried about them becoming Christians. I'm worried about them more deciding this isn't for them and maybe just getting absorbed into secular culture. The Jews tend to assimilate up and into comfort and hipness and style. They didn't assimilate much at all in Poland because the Polish countryside and the peasants therein offered no great getaway. They assimilated... Like mad in Rome and in Greece, where they were at the height of secular culture, probably in Babylonia and in America and in Western Europe.
1: So practically speaking, you live in Hollywood. There is a lot of... What the Rebbe's in Israel used to call Gashmi's, or a lot of... um,
2: Worldliness, materialism. Yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah. superficiality.
2: Well, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. It's pleasure, baby. It's great music, it's great food, it's a great club scene. It's vibrant, and it's not mistaken to say it looks like life. It, It can be very rich, but it's not eternal.
1: But your kids are going to be exposed. They are exposed to the red carpet and the People magazine and the whole schmear. So how do you raise them? And I think you are in a heightened position when it comes to the secular world and the secular life. And yet you are raising your children to be observant Jews. So is there a takeaway that other parents who are maybe in Middle America or on the Eastern Seaboard, is there a takeaway that they can have to say something you are doing is something that they can do also to keep their kids on the road to Jewish continuity.
2: Uh, yes and no. I wish that I could say, hey, I'm this stellar example and do like I do, and I can guarantee you your kids are going to stay on this path and they're going to have wonderful Jewish families and grandchildren great-grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and the line will go on. My wife and I both live in a fair bit of worry that our kids will be, will be swept up in the secular life. They show signs of it at times in Los Angeles, and you look at the Jewish day schools, here the kids are. Everyone's got a cell phone, there's a lot of texting going on on Shabbos, there's a lot of kids not keeping kosher, there's a lot of kids jumping in a car. That's happening, and my kids are surrounded by it, and I can't tell you for sure that they're not now and then taking part in it. So that worries me. And it's not what I wanted, and when we started out, I had this fantasy that, well, if you're really you know, you put on a black hat and you go to a very religious Jewish day school. And we started at a much more conservative Jewish, I mean, conservative meaning more black hat, more yeshivish school. And the, both of the kids had some learning disabilities. So we had to go to a school that had more programming available, which was a more modern orthodox. And I'll tell you candidly, I think modern orthodoxy is going to face huge, it already has huge challenges in the longevity department because of the exposure to modernity. I don't fault it for that. I I think there's something great. We're meant to be light in the world. We are meant to be salt and light in the world. We're supposed to be a light unto the nations, and we gotta be in the nations to do that. But that's a huge risk. So I've I, I have no panacea for that one. But I will say this. Our children were raised with the joy of Judaism and we made it fun. And we both have a passion for it. And I will I mean this is an old saying and I just really didn't invent it. You except I stumbled on it when I was going to Michael Medved's table. I was watching that table and going, I would want this for my kids, but I know that it will never happen unless I'm doing it. If you don't have a passion for it, the war is lost. You know, my dad, bless, him, bless his heart, was a spectacular father. He's a great man. I love him dearly. You know, he's, he, he's, uh, we lost him in February to Alzheimer's. He had a great life and, and uh, just a wonderful guy. He wasn't into the trappings of religious Judaism. He just just didn't work for him. He, didn't, you know, he was a music guy. And, and I followed his love of the arts and performance. But I, I got the passion for the religion more from my mom. She was a spiritual person. And I think I got that from her. All of her kids did. But kids tend to follow their father a lot of times lifestyle-wise. So here I am in the arts, which he was against. Kids should be doctors and lawyers and things that make sense. But you do what you see. And he was in the arts and I'm in the arts. So my one thing to say would be, you got to make it fun. My daughter was born after my wife finished her conversion and went in the mikvah. So she was born before we were remarried in a proper Jewish ceremony. So technically, she wasn't Jewish at that time. When we were remarried at age one or two, I took her in the mikvah, and then at her bat mitzvah, she had choose Judaism. We had to give her the option to opt out terrifying couple nights for me. Of course, it was silly to be worried. She was 12 and she was madly in love with Judaism. And she said, oh, Abba, you're so silly. Of course, of course I want to be Jewish. Although she had a year earlier said, I get to choose, don't I? And gave us a little bit of of a scare. The truth is everybody can opt out. And everybody might opt out. There's no guarantee because your children were born while you were already Jewish. So you've got to make it make sense and you've got to make it fun and you've got to know why you're doing it. And that's exciting. You could be worried about that and go, oh, no, I don't. I'm not. Fine. That's great. That's great news because now you have something wonderful to work on. Good. Make a phone call tomorrow and find a class and get excited about something and start getting excited. And that's the beautiful thing about Judaism is that we get to start every morning all over again. Modani. You know, I will give thanks unto you because you gave me back my soul. Why? Because your faith is great in me. You want me here again. You must believe. So good. You need to start over and get your kids more excited. And your kids are already gone. Fine. Let them look back and go, wow, look at that. Mom and Dad, you know, I'm past college now. And I'm, they're taking all these classes now. And they're lighting candles. and they're... Have at it.
1: David and Weiss, if somebody wants to hire you as a speaker, how do they reach you?
2: Oh, have them write into your show. And, and you can forward it. I don't want to just put the email out there in general.
1: I understand. Okay. So, folks, you can log on to our Facebook page, The World According to Gorf. So, I believe it's Facebook.com/slash/The World According to Gorf to have David and Weiss speak at your Shabbaton. You
2: know what? Also, if, you, if you, I can send you a link, and we did a spectacular conference in South Africa about a year and a half ago with some of the biggest traveling speaking rabbis, you know, on the planet. I was very humbled and honored to be with them. Uh, they brought me because I tell a few jokes, and I'm, you know. So, um, but I did, they, they did a great job of videotaping those. So I can get you a couple of links uh, to, with, with a talk that sort of covers my my the, the actual coming back to Judaism.
1: That's wonderful. To secure David N Weiss for your speaking engagement needs, please log on to facebook.com/the world to Gorf. We will provide you with a couple of links so you can see David N Weiss in action. Your father was a musician, and you're sitting next to a guitar. Do you have a favorite Jewish song that we can go out
2: with? Yeah, right now I'm learning. Uh, Jonathan Rizal is my favorite Jewish composer uh, out of Israel. He's just such a special guy, and I'm trying to learn his version of Katanti, um, which I, I I don't I sing it to you to sound horrible. But you know, Ketanti, why don't you play that as uh, as we guys are going out and imagining it to me? Thank you, Jordan. It's been a real pleasure.